Welcome to Women Transcend. I'm Jennifer Todd, and this is a podcast that explores issues that affect women and girls worldwide. Each episode, we dive into a topic of national or international significance and discuss the particular impact on women and girls and how they are able to overcome or transcend. We live with a lot of things we don't want to have to deal with. Taxes, traffic, noisy neighbors, Mondays, lots of things that are out of our control, but we just have to learn how to manage. So that list I just mentioned doesn't even begin to encapsulate all of our daily headaches, right? Just an example of some of the things we have to learn to deal with. Let's add to that list lead. This may seem sort of mundane. Lead doesn't get your adrenaline rising necessarily. Doesn't move you to immediate action. But maybe it should. Let's take a look at this from different angles. We've actually heard about lead in the news quite a bit recently. In particular, in Flint, Michigan, where some homes were tested and found to have lead levels in their water that was so high, the water technically qualified as hazardous waste. But why should we care about lead if we don't live in Flint? Here are some facts. For background, we've known about the toxic properties of lead for quite a long time. Richard Nixon was the first president to recognize in policy the dangers of lead and start signing bills to reduce and restrict lead pollution, including the Clean Air Act of 1970. The federal government started to phase out lead and gasoline in the very early 1980s, but it wasn't completely restricted by the federal government until 1995. The government gave oil companies several extensions of different sorts to allow them years to phase out leaded gasoline, nearly 20 years. Gasoline was one source of lead, but not the only one. It is also found in paint, lead-based paint, ceramics, pipes, solders, or the metal that holds metal together, Cosmetics, believe it or not, batteries, household dust, drinking water, leaded crystal, lead-glazed pottery, and contaminated soil. What are some of the health impacts of lead exposure? Lead can be breathed in, swallowed, or absorbed through the skin. The health effects are the same regardless of the route of exposure. Once in the human body, lead finds its way into bone, blood, and tissues. Lead can accumulate slowly in the body, and you may not even be aware of it. Once you're exposed to dangerous levels, the health effects can include anemia, weakness, kidney and brain damage, and with very high lead levels, death. Those most vulnerable to suffering health effects include pregnant women and small children. Lead has the ability to cross the placental barrier, and that means that if a pregnant woman is exposed, 
her developing fetus is exposed as well. Lead can damage the nervous system of the fetus. Even low levels of lead exposure have been shown to affect behavior and intelligence in children, actually lowering IQ scores. And lead exposure can cause miscarriage, stillbirth, and infertility in both men and women, among other things. These are some very serious health consequences. Mothers love their children and want to give them the very best chance in life. No one wants to give birth to a baby who has already been loaded with toxins from our modern world. Our society should want that for its mothers as well. The recent and ongoing crisis of lead in the water supply for Flint, Michigan, raises a really interesting question about the issue of lead and environmental exposures in general. Are there environmental hazards that are tacitly allowed by our society for some populations? In particular, those living in poverty and ethnic minorities, in particular black Americans. Maybe it just isn't as big a deal if certain populations are impacted or poisoned. Advocates have coined the phrase environmental racism, and there seems to be a solid foundation for this charge. They ask, would the governor of Michigan, whose responsibility includes Flint, have taken quicker action to rectify the lead and safe water environmental crisis if the impacted population were not poor, 40% living below the poverty line? Flint's population is also 57% black. Did that have an impact on the lack of response or molasses slow action by Republican Governor Rick Snyder? This begs the question, what would the response have been if this same exposure problem came up in the wealthy Detroit suburbs of Gross Point or Dearborn Heights? So for residents of Flint, Michigan, who have been fighting, advocating, agitating to be heard, bottled water is a fact of life now. If you want to boil pasta for dinner, bottled water. If you want to brush your teeth, bottled water. It's not convenient and it's not cheap. And the long-term health effects of this lead exposure have yet to be fully realized, and in maybe years, maybe decades before they are. In a memo to the Michigan governor, Governor Snyder, his staff advised that lead is, quote, not a top health concern, and, quote, this issue will fade in the rear view. It might fade for the governor and his staff with their safe water supply, but it's not so easily forgotten for those impacted. My guest today who will help me discuss this issue is Ruth Long. She is an environmental social justice advocate, researcher, educator, and devoted mom. She ironically was thrust into the middle of the lead exposure epidemic, and in my interview with her, she discusses the extraordinary lengths 
she had to go to in order to keep her children safe from lead. Welcome to Women Transcend Ruth. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, so we're going to discuss um, an issue that I think that a lot of people kind of have a misconception that they understand, but but I think that there's a lot more that we need to know, which is why I'm really glad that you're able to join us and help us uh, learn more about this. So we're going to be talking about lead today. So I think that people generally have the idea that, you know, they they hear in the news that there's lead in drinking water. Oh, it might be an issue in Flint, Michigan, but it's not an issue here. And it's, you know, it's only a, a major metropolitan issue. Is that correct? Well, thank you for the question. And yes, it is a very timely topic. I've noticed that it's come up quite frequently as of late, lead and lead exposure. You know, not only in Flint, Michigan, but recently here where I am in Oakland, California, there was um, in the Fruitvale District, they're talking about that as well as having a higher rate of exposure than in Flint or in Washington, D.C., where there also was a big, big issue. So to answer your question about the risk of exposure in uh, urban environments versus rural environments, it is true that there is a higher concentration of lead in an urban environment. It doesn't mean that there isn't any in a rural environment, but just based on the nature of how lead has been introduced into the environment, an urban environment is going to have a higher concentration. Uh huh. Okay, that's a great segue to something that's on my mind. So lead, leaded gasoline was banned in the 1970s as a way mm-hmm. to try to reduce airborne lead exposure, I believe, which obviously ultimately ends up in the soil. But right. I, I think that people might have a misconception that since lead was banned from gasoline, that mm-hmm. it's no longer a problem. Is it true that lead was just in gasoline and we don't really have to worry about it anymore? No, unfortunately, um, once lead is in the environment, it's there forever. Um, It does not dissipate. It doesn't, you know, it's not something you can flush away out of an environment. Um, It is a heavy metal and it sticks to whatever it is. So when lead from leaded gasoline was put out into the atmosphere, it gets collected in clouds and falls to the ground as rain, and the rain the lead in the rain goes into the soil. And so the soil is actually the biggest culprit of exposure of lead um, because of all the leaded gasoline, the impact of leaded gasoline is still with us. It doesn't matter that we stop using it, the lead is still there. Uh, another big risk factor are coal burning power plants. They put out a lot of lead as well in combination with other pollutants. Um, so anywhere where there's a coal-burning power plant, like in Washington, downtown Washington, D.C., there is an additional avenue of lead exposure. Uh-huh. Wow. Yeah, that's – and I grew up about a mile from a coal-burning power plant and with open-air coal slag, and we got you right. know, information about how it was perfectly safe, and we had <laughs> a well – 
So I'm sure yeah. that I am just lit up with lead. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. So uh, what are the, the health effects of lead and lead exposure? Well, first of all, the most vulnerable population are children. Um, and that's because they are probably the, they have the greatest risk of being exposed for a multitude of reasons. But if you think about even if we're, so we're just talking about one venue for exposure would be soil. So when your child is learning to crawl and walk, they're on the ground. Hands are on the ground. They're lying on the ground. If you take them outside or even if you're not outside and they're on the rug near a door that goes in and out, they will be getting exposed from dirt particles that come through there. And so yeah, because it, you know, it walks inside on your shoes, right? That's exactly. Uh-huh. And so babies, you know, toddlers, their hands are in their mouth a lot. So even if they go to the playground and uh, the playgrounds in Washington, D.C., for example, near where I used to live, they uh, there's soil there that's been there. It's not has not been encapsulated. And so the, the exposure... Uh, to the soil at the playground is the same thing. So the, the soil gets on the play structure. And whether or not they're crawling or swinging from the bars, the soil is there, getting on their hands and then eventually getting on in their mouths. So they are at the greatest risk for the amount of exposure and at the greatest risk for health effects because their brains are still developing and lead has a tendency to cause behavior and learning problems. And at high levels, it can cause a lower IQ and slowed growth, hearing problems, uh, anemia. It can impact pregnant women as well, reducing the growth of the fetus or a premature birth. So those are the populations that are at most risk. The biggest concern, I think, for most people are the behavior and learning problems. Yeah. But, you know, anemia can be really difficult to live with. Yeah, sure. And once lead is in your body. Yeah, it doesn't still, wash out. It doesn't out. really go away. Right? Yeah. It uh, stays in fat deposit, doesn't it? It eventually gets to your bones and just hangs out there. Ah, okay. Now, you just mentioned something that caught my attention regarding lead and pregnant women. So it can contribute to delayed fetal growth. Uh, Am I correct? Close. Reduced growth of the fetus. Okay. So it can cause small baby. Yeah. Okay. And or premature birth. Wow. Okay. Let me just say one thing real quickly is that one of the tricky things with lead is, is that dosage doesn't necessarily matter. Meaning a low dose for one person could have the same impact as a high dose for somebody else and vice versa. And some people who don't have, who have a high exposure may not have any or limited uh, health effects. Uh-huh. So I just wanted to put the point yeah, that no, out that's, that, yeah, because that dosage doesn't really matter. That, I think that's really important because people may think, well, you know, I, I was, I only lived in that city for a year. So my exposure was very limited and I haven't lived there for a long time. So I'm probably fine. But exactly. um, as you mentioned, once it's in your body, these heavy exactly. metals, they're, they're there to stay. Now, I know that you had a personal experience with lead in your backyard. Can you tell us about your experience trying to mitigate that lead? So at the time, yes, I'm happy to share this. At the time, uh, I was living in Washington, D.C. It was 2007. 
and I had a nine-month-old, and as part because of the DC Wassa uh, water issues, where they had changed in 2003, they had changed chemicals that they were using in cleaning the water, which leached lead out of the solder of the pipes, putting lead into the water system. So in 2003, that occurred. They eventually changed the chemicals again to stop the leaching, but not for two years. So there was a heightened level of awareness of lead in the Washington, D.C. area. And so uh, the CDC recommends lead testing um, for children about age one. Um, In D.C., they recommend at nine months because of the history of lead in the environment. Uh So at nine months, my older son was tested and he came back with an elevated lead level. Again, in Washington, D.C., they say that, you know, a three to five micrograms per billion isn't the norm. Humans should have zero. So there's a norm of a moderate level of lead for children in Washington, D.C. I think that's unacceptable. However, that's what it is. Uh So my son came back higher than that, just above that. Um, but that was a red flag enough for our pediatrician to say something in your environment is contributing to his uh, lead level. Mm-hmm. So we spent time getting our water tested. Um, and I don't necessarily agree with how they want you to test your water. Then we also had, um, it was a lead free organization, but they came and tested our house and did swabs around windowsills and doorways and on on the walls and trying to figure out where lead may be coming into our home. They found elevated lead levels by our back door. And so we found that there was we had a backyard that was well overgrown and probably hadn't been tended to well for 50 years. So at that point we redid our backyard to encapsulate the soil. The only way to remove lead is to dig down. I think it's maybe 18 inches, but to remove all the lead, all the dirt, you'd have to remove all the soil. So it's cheaper and faster and easier to just encapsulate it. So we're covering it with concrete, covering it with fresh Mm -hmm. soil, with grass, anything that keeps the lead down and under. Once it, you know, so it's not airborne, it doesn't wash away, it's just covered. And within six months of completing the backyard, uh, my son's lead level had come down half by half. So that was the culprit in our situation. Wow. Okay. When you're describing that encapsulating, yeah. I my mind immediately goes to the sarcophagus over Chernobyl. Like they had right. to put that, the, the only way to control that radiation was to right. encapsulate it in, yeah, I don't even know how many feet right. or meters of concrete. And essentially that's what you had to do in your backyard to protect your children from lead. Correct. Wow. Well, fortunately, it made our backyard much more user friendly and we enjoyed it thoroughly. But it required, you know, it was a $15,000 investment to Uh protect our children. Yeah. And 
And not everybody can do that. Exactly. Yeah. And I wonder if um, low low socioeconomic status areas or poor areas are more prone to lead or if it's kind of an equal opportunity contaminant. It's a little bit of both. It's equal opportunity in that in an urban environment, it's in the environment, whether it's in the soil, whether it's in the water, um, it can get airborne, but it's there. So uh-huh. the difference being is that those who um, have less, re- fewer resources don't have the co- uh, financial capacity to protect themselves and their children, meaning $15,000 is a lot of money. And, yeah. you know, most people don't have that sitting around to redo their backyard. So, uh-huh. um, and so the people who are, who have fewer resources generally live in neighborhoods closer to industrial areas yeah. um, where lead could still be being um, introduced into the environment. And so even if, the folks who have fewer resources living in these in more industrial neighborhoods, even if they have the finance, financial ability to encapsulate their backyard or wherever, whatever, they would have continual reintroduction of lead yeah. in an industrial neighborhoods. Uh-huh. And if you lived in an apartment complex and didn't have a yard... And went to the playground, uh, you know, you have no control over the quality of the soil that's there. So it's coming back in your shoes and it's in their clothes if they're rolling around on the ground. On their hands, Uh it's in their hair. I mean, it's everywhere. Yeah. Okay. And one of the other things our pediatrician recommended was for fairly thorough hand washing at the park before we left. Uh-huh. Um, so just to mitigate the exposure to the soil at the park. Yeah. And that helped as well. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Well, I thought this was really an important topic to discuss because I really do think that it is an issue that is underappreciated and misunderstood. And it's one of those topics that you know, might come up in the local news, is there lead in your water? And, you know, you might be kind of alarmed, sort of feel like, well, what can I do? It's in the water. Well, it's not just in the water, it's in the soil, it's in our homes. So what can we do to work to make our environment safer in Uh terms of lead, safer for our children? Right. Uh, It's a very important question. It's a very timely question. It's come up again and again in the media of late, which I'm glad for. I'm sad that it keeps happening, but I'm glad it's being brought back to the conversation. You know, when I was in Washington, D.C., it was 2003, and we had this major lead issue. Then 10 years later, it happens in Flint, and it's like everybody seemed to have forgotten it happened in D.C. And now it's happening in in Oakland, and it's like, oh, wow, you know, it's it seems novel each time it happens. So yeah, it, it's important to keep the conversation going. So I appreciate you having this conversation as well. So what folks can do to protect themselves and their children, there are who may or may not have the resources to encapsulate their yard. You know, there are a couple things on the local individual level, and then on the more global level. Let's start with the more national global level. It's really talking to our 
representatives and making sure that they understand how important it is that we reduce and eliminate lead uh, being introduced into our environment. We may not be able to remove it, but we shouldn't be adding any more to it. Uh And we need to advocate. If advocating is not your thing, you know, at the very least, send an email to your local representative. That's on a more national and global level. On an individual level, the most important thing would be to find out if you have a lead exposure in your in your home, in your backyard, in your living its space. So there are free resources for, I think it's Lead Safe America, that will come to your home and will do test your home. They will see, they won't do your water. Your water you have to do through your water provider. Oh, yeah. uh-huh. But they will test your home and your, your living environment to find out if there are lead sources of exposure. Finding out that information is pivotal in your ability to control and reduce lead exposure. So if you know where it's coming from, you can remove it, you can try to cover it, and the most import- one of the most important and easy things to do, wash your hands. Yeah. Keep children's hands clean. Yeah. Because children put their hands in their mouth that, yeah. a million times a day. Uh-huh. That's how it gets into their system. Yeah. So if you are concerned about a spa- living space or an outdoor space that your children spend time in, you know, we don't need to be neurotic about it, but we do need to make sure that before they eat, um, when they come inside the house, for you know, the first time after playing or being at school, wash your hands. Yeah. That well, re- that goes a long way from keeping the lead from going into their system. Into your body. Okay. Well, I really thank you so much for joining me to discuss this topic and for lending your personal experience uh, with lead, which is disturbing, but, you know, illuminates how important the issue is and how sort of insidious it can be. So I really appreciate that. And so thank you very much for joining us for Women Transcend. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much. This episode's Woman in the Spotlight is Vandana Shiva. Ms. Shiva has been outspoken about the relationship between the subordination of women and environmental degradation. She writes that there is a connection between the dominance of nature and the dominance over women. Exploitation of women's labor, as well as the abuse of natural environment, are connected as they are both marginalized within the economy. Both the environment and women have been viewed as exploitable resources that are significantly undervalued. Vandana Shiva was recognized by Time Magazine in 2003 as an environmental hero. For her courage to be outspoken and out front in what is referred to as eco-feminism we are grateful to make Vandana Shiva this week's Woman in the Spotlight.
Thanks for joining us for this episode of Women Transcend. Be sure to leave a review for us on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. That will make it easier for others to find us as well. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so you can be sure you won't miss an episode. It will automatically show up in your podcast player. If you like a particular episode, it's really easy to share directly through Twitter or Facebook. A big thanks to Ruth Long for speaking with me for today's episode and to John Philbeck for doing all of the fabulous sound artistry so that we sound so good. Tweet us at Women Transcend or follow us on Facebook. We always enjoy hearing from you. That's all for this episode.